Hello. You're, you're embarrassing me. Who here has been to college and lived in the dorm at college? Anyone here? A few of you. Okay, cool. Um, I lived in on college campus, and um, when I lived on the dorm, I had three very close friends that I met at the dorm. Well, one I knew from high school, but uh, there was three of them, Dan and Chris and my friend Scott. Scott I knew from high school. But Dan and Chris shared the same room together, and Scott had his own room. And uh, Chris and Scott were about the same. They were equally, what should I say, they were both vertically challenged. They were both about the same height. So they would constantly wrestle play tricks on each other and do stuff. It wasn't very uncommon for me to come back after studying late at night to find them both wrestling in the lounge, covered in shaving cream from whatever it was that they were doing, uh, trying to get each other back, you know. And one day, Dan went to Scott's room and he walks into Scott's room and he's carrying a bucket. And he says, Scott, quickly, take this bucket. Chris has a bucket of water and he's after you. So Scott left and went off toward the bathroom to fill up the bucket. Well, Dan's kind of hanging out in Scott's room, just kind of smiling. And then Chris walks into the room and Chris is like, hey, where's Scott? And Dan goes, here, take this bucket. Scott's after you with a bucket of water. So Chris takes off and goes to fill up the bucket. Now, Dan just sits back and watches as they're running through the dorm room hallways, hiding on each other, soaking each other with buckets and buckets of water. And uh, I came back to the dorm at one point and not having witnessed all of this, I come into the lounge once again. And there they both are wrestling on the ground, soaked to their, you know, to the skin in water, you know, and I'm like, guys, what is going on here? You know, like, this is strange. And Scott goes, listen, Dan told me that Chris was after me with a bucket of water. And Chris goes, wait, what? Dan told me that you were after me with a bucket of water. You know, and you ever see that look on somebody's faces when it suddenly all comes together? They're like, you know, and I'm like, oh, man. So they take off to try to find Dan, who was long gone by then after that. And uh, I was thinking, man, I wish I had thought of that first. <laughs> but after that, they weren't sure whether to trust Dan or not when he told them something. Because they weren't sure if he was like fooling around. Have you ever been uh, told something uh, and you weren't sure that it was true? I mean, I don't know if you've been in a place like this. It's happened to me where I've been driving and I have driving instructions. I even have instructions. And I think I know where I'm going. And I'm like, it says to take a right here, but I'm pretty sure I have to take a left, right? And you're starting to come up to that. And you're thinking, and you're talking to the person who's in the seat. I think I should take a left. But the directions say take a right. And you're like, what should I do? You know, Google Maps can't be wrong. Yeah, but I think it's on the left, you know? And, and the, your voice is heightening and heightening the closer and closer you're getting to the turn, right? And you get all stressed out and you have two options, but you don't know which one to take. And you're thinking, what is the right one? Well, we've been faced, all of us, with two different decisions at times in our lives, and it's been tough to know what to do. And maybe because we didn't have all the facts, uh, maybe we didn't feel knowledgeable enough in a certain area, or maybe we felt we weren't educated enough to know what was true. And I think it's most easy to be misled in areas where we don't feel knowledgeable. And the same thing can happen to us when it comes to biblical teaching. How can we know the truth? What's real and what's false? 
And if you've ever been in the place where you've heard like two conflicting teachings from maybe two different people or two different uh, churches or whatever, you know what I'm talking about. You've wondered this yourself. And when you think about that for a moment, I mean, this is really a huge question, isn't it? Because not only do we want to be right when it comes to God, but the truth is we make some very big decisions for our life based on what we think God wants of us, right? So the question arises, how do we know what is being taught to us is true? And that's why I think today's teaching is so important to you and I. We're in the book of 1 John, and you can go ahead and turn to chapter 4 if you want to get ahead. And we're in a series called Real, Authentic, True, uh, uh, excuse me, yeah, Authentic Faith in a Fake World. And so how much more appropriate should we study today what's real about God? Today's message is titled Real Theology. And I know that that word theology sounds like a really big thing. I put up on the screen for you a definition, though. Theology is simply the study of religious faith, practice, and experience. I mean, we think a theologian, big, right? It's simply the study of religious faith, practice, and experience. I mean, it's what we believe about God. It's the tenets and it's the um, teachings of our faith. And I'm going to use this term, theology, and the term doctrine sometimes interchangeably today. And doctrine simply means, if you want to write it down, simply means teaching. That's it, doctrine. What is your doctrine? What is your teaching? What is it that you learn? And so the first letter of John that we're in right now was written specifically to set straight the false teachings of that day. Now, Jesus said this when he was on the earth, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, They are ravenous wolves. Did you notice something about the wolves? They don't come dressed as wolves. They come dressed as the sheep, right? They come into the flock, but they're not like the wolf self. They look like a sheep. And it's not easy to to detect them. You see, that's what happens when Jesus talks about these false prophets. Because they look like us. And they act like us. And they even use words like we use. And they might say words like fellowship. Or they might say, God bless you, brother. So they're going to say the things that we would say. They would maybe even espouse some truths that we know. And they look like Christians. So what what do we do? Well, let's read the first verse of chapter 4. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Your attention for a minute. John tells us right off the bat, this is what we are to do, to test the spirits. He tells us to see if what they're saying is truly from God. And you may be wondering, like I was wondering, well, how do we do that, right? How do we test the spirits? Well, today, I think you're in the right place because we're going to learn to do just that. Now, you don't need to be a Bible scholar and have studied for years and years. There are some things that we're going to learn today that can help anyone know the difference between good teaching and bad, true doctrine and false, uh, correct theology and incorrect theology. Now, today's message is going to be a little bit different than maybe what you're normally used to when you come to church, because instead of being more like a sermon, it might be more like a classroom today. So I want you to take out your outlines that you have, and I want you to take out your pens and follow along and take some notes, because I'm going to reveal to you five principles for understanding real theology. And the first one is this, if you got your notes out, teaching that adds nothing to the gospel, teaching that adds nothing to the gospel. We're going to read again from verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. 
Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. All right. The same thing, uh, specifically at issue here in the church that John is talking about, is the deity of Christ. See, there was a heresy in that day. It was called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, they believed in the material world that they existed in, but they also believed in a spiritual world. But the physical world was evil, and the spiritual world was good. But here's the problem. Man being physical was evil by nature. And he needed special gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, like Gnosticism, special knowledge. That's what it means. They needed special gnosis, special knowledge, in order for him to be saved, to receive salvation of the soul and release himself from the material world. So what would happen is that spiritual beings would come, spiritual beings or, or oracles would come and reveal what this special knowledge was. And now Jesus was the supreme spiritual being and he came to earth to reveal the special knowledge to men. However, because Jesus was spirit, right? And the earth was evil. Then Jesus could not come in the flesh. And they were denying that God actually came and was man. And they questioned his divinity. And in doing so, they changed the gospel completely. Because what they began to teach is that if you follow Christ's teachings, they were the key or the special revelation that gave you access to God. They totally bypassed the work of Christ on the cross that forgives us of our sins. And we have a similar teaching today that Jesus, a man, could not be God, is what they're saying. There are those who go around teaching that he was something less. And the sufficiency of Christ's atoning death, though, is based on his deity, him being God. Listen to what it says in the Bible. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against him. Listen to that. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. It was God himself, not some created being that he made, no matter how angelic or how spiritual, no matter what it was. It wasn't some creation that he says, here, I'm going to put you down. You pay the sins. No, he says, I will pay the sins of the world. You see, it was God himself. And when we reduce the deity of Jesus, when we say, Jesus, you are not God, we reduce the sufficiency of the sacrifice that was made for you and me. And that's the difficulty of Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses today. You see, it begins with their first view that God was, Jesus was created. That he was a created spiritual being. So that Jesus on the cross simply becomes a way for man to begin again. They teach you that Jesus' act on the cross only gives you the opportunity. It only gives you the chance to now begin to earn salvation through works. So their, their doctrine focuses on works, not grace. You still have to earn your salvation. You may have to do everything that the Bible says. You may have to go out witnessing. You may have to take a two-year 
evangelical tour in some other country telling people about your faith. And only then, if you do all those things, could you then be saved. And here's the problem. We all of us already know that being perfect is impossible, right? So how can that be? The Bible tells us this, for by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Any teaching that adds to the Bible or adds to the gospel of salvation other than the grace of God is not found in Scripture. You see, the gospel is not about some special knowledge that we know. It's not about some special ability that we have that we can resist sin. No, it is simply about the work of the cross. And this is the beauty of it. Because it's like that, it's simple and it's free to anyone. You see, God made it that way so that any person can come to him simply by believing. And anything that adds to that gospel should raise a red flag for you and me to say, what's going on here? Because anything outside of that is not found in Scripture. And that will lead us to our next point, which is this, teaching that is found in the Bible. Another sign of real theology is that teaching is founded in the Bible. The Bible says this, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is solely where we derive our theology, not from some other place. There was this pe- group of people in the Bible, as Paul would go and talk in the different cities, and he got to this one city called Berea, and when he was teaching there, he commended the people, they called them Bereans, for what they did. Listen to what it says. These were for, more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. You see, they checked up on the apostles. The apostles are there teaching, and the guys would go, let me see if that's really true. And they looked through their Bibles, and they would find to see if it was true. And here's the thing, the apostles didn't get mad. Like, what are you checking up on me? Don't you think I know what I'm talking about? They didn't say anything like that. They actually commend them, and they say, that was good. You went and checked it out for yourself to see if what we were saying was actually true. There, uh, there's a, a movie coming out with Will Ferrell. And uh, I haven't seen it. I don't think I'm intending to see it. I don't know, but it's called The Campaign. And Will Ferrell plays this senator that had been elected for four, year, four terms straight. Now someone comes in. He was going to go unopposed, but somebody comes in and starts running against him. So now he has to really start campaigning. And so what he decides to do is he wants to garner the religious vote. So he starts going to all these different organizations, these churches, these different faiths and goes into their services. And at one point he finds himself in, and I've only seen this in the trailers, by the way. So I just, you know, he finds himself in a church that's snake handling. I think we have a little picture of it. There he is holding up the snakes, getting all excited. Has anyone ever heard of that snake handling? Okay. A few of you have. Okay. I, I didn't really know that much about it. I mean, I think I'd seen it, but I had a boss once and my boss was from the Appalachians and he's from West Virginia. And uh, he would tell me different stories about that because they were in the Appalachians. They didn't even get electricity when he was a kid. And I mean, he's only in his 50s. So it's like, he's not that old. And he said that was, he went to a church, had his family went to a church that they did snake handling. And I'm like, was it creepy? And he's like, you betcha. You know, it's like weird stuff going on there. And the thing is, it's still legal in West Virginia today. In fact, this year alone, this year, there was a pastor who died. I, I got the article because I just wanted to um, wanted you to 
hear it. It says, Pentecostal pastor Mark Wolford, he's 44, hosted an outdoor service, which he touted on his Facebook page prior to the event. In quotes, I am looking for a great time this Sunday, Walford wrote. It's going to be a homecoming like the old days. Good old raised in the holler or mountain ridge running. Holy Ghost filled, speaking in tongues, signed believers. Now, I wasn't trying to make fun as much as give you the, the essence of what was being said. Robin Vanover, Walford's sister, told the Washington Post that 30 minutes into the outdoor service, Walford passed around a poisonous timber rattlesnake, which eventually bit him. He laid, it on the gr- he laid it on the ground, Vanover said in the interview. He sat down next to the snake and it bit him on the thigh. Vanover said Wolverd was then transported to a family's member's home in Bluefield, about 80 miles away to recover. But as the situation worsened, he was taken to the hospital where he later died. Like, interesting, if you go through the article and you read near the end, it says that his father, Wolford's father, died at age 39 from a rattlesnake that bit him during his service also. Like... That's crazy, right? We're thinking, would you, you know, how, what if I just said, hey, the ushers are going to come forward now. Everybody grab a snake. You know, you'd be like, we're out of here. Well, why would, a, why would a preacher hand out a poisonous snake to his audience, to his congregation? I mean, the way, he, where he gets it is this, from a single verse in the Bible, just one verse. Listen to this. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons, they will speak new tongues, they will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. I mean, so if we read this, there is an element of truth, right, to that, right? That snake handling, you could hold one and maybe not die from it. But what's misleading about this teaching is it carries some of the truth. But the problem is it's found nowhere else in scripture. And the danger becomes when we take one verse out of the Bible and we build a theology on it. Is snake handling wrong? I don't know, to be honest. I don't. And, and if you want to hold one, you're welcome to do it. I don't think I will. But here's the point. We shouldn't take one verse that we've read in the Bible and build a big theology on it. We must consider the whole counsel of scripture. Calvary Fellowship, I don't know if you've been here a short time, a long time, or how long you've been here, but we make it a practice of teaching through the Bible. It's called expositional teaching. What we do is we teach through the verses and we teach exactly what it means when you come here. And this book that we're studying right now is 1 John. I mean, we call it real, but it really, we're going to go through the whole book of 1 John. And the next series is going to be based on another book. And that's just the way we do it because we believe that if we go through the the Bible, eventually we're going to hit every single doctrine. And not simply camp on one doctrine alone. You see, that's sometimes the problem. Have you ever been to a church? I'd been to one when I was younger. And that, it seemed, I'd been there for like a year. Every single time I came, it was always on spiritual warfare. Like, that's what it was. Every single week. I mean, imagine if I invited you over to my house for dinner, right? And I said, come on in. And then I had like this bowl of M&Ms as you're hanging out. I'm like, here, have some M&Ms. And you're like, oh, great. You know, and you're eating them. And then I go, okay, now we're going to put out the appetizer. And I bring to you a chocolate bar. And I put that on a plate. And you're like, oh, okay. You know, and like, all right, I eat that. And then now I bring out the main course. And it's like chocolate sauce on all this other stuff. And we're dipping it. And I'm like, wait till you see dessert. You know, and you're like, chocolate again? You know, right? What would happen if that's all we ate? 
What had happened if all we did was eat chocolate? Now, sure, chocolate tastes good, it's desirable, and maybe it's good for you to some degree, but if that's all we ate, we're not going to be very healthy, are we? Because we need to see the whole counsel of Scripture. In fact, today's topic, the reason we're preaching about this at all, is because that's where we are in the book of John. He says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. And at the end, we're going to say that this is how you know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. That's what this area is about, so that's why we're teaching on it. Listen, how can we know a good theology from a bad theology? Let me give you something very practical. It's in your outline, and it's going to be up on on the screen. There's a little test that you can use that will help you any time that you hear something being taught in a church. And this one is very helpful. It's been helpful to me. But the first thing is, we're going to to put it up here. It It should have been taught by Jesus. Did Jesus teach it at one point in his ministry? Two, it should be modeled in the book of Acts. Did they actually practice it, what was being taught before by Jesus in the book of Acts? And then three, is it supported in the epistles? The epistles are the letters of the apostles that they wrote. It's not the apostles' wives. The, here's the thing. It should match up all of these three. Not one, not two, but all of them. And this is what I would submit to you, okay? As just me talking to you. That if it doesn't, then be careful about building a theology on it. Could it happen? Of course it could happen. God can do anything. But when we start to build a theology and it doesn't match up with all these, I think we need to be careful. Let's look at how it works for a minute, though. Let's take communion for a minute. Was communion taught by Jesus on the night before he was betrayed? Yes. Did they practice it in the book of Acts? Yes. They went from home to home and they broke bread together. And was it talked about in the epistles? Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about communion. What about baptism? Jesus was baptized himself and he said, listen, I need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. People were being baptized like crazy in the book of Acts. And then finally, we hear about uh, baptism by uh, Peter and Paul. Both of them speak about it. So we say, yeah, you know what? It doesn't necessarily make it a doctrine, by the way. It doesn't necessarily make it a theology. But if it doesn't pass this, then maybe we should say, should it be at all? Here's the third thing of the five signs of real theology teaching that creates no barriers to God, teaching that creates no barriers to God. And uh, I grew up in a certain denomination. And when I went to started going to another church and I was a Christian and I started going to this church, um, I didn't know really what one to go to. And I was talking with my friend and he was like, well, I have an uncle and uh, he has a church. So I started going there. And for a while I went with them and uh, I actually ended up going to that church for like over a year. It was like 45 minutes away. And in this service, they did something interesting toward the end of the service, before the service was over. People would walk up to the front of the area, like here, and the pastor would be there. And then they would kind of stand there like this, and the pastor would put his hand on them. And then this interesting thing would happen. They would fall over backwards, and they would just be laying there. And um, has anyone ever heard this? This is called slain in the spirit. Anyone ever heard this before? Or maybe you've seen it. That's what it's called, slain in the spirit. And... uh, what I was told, because I'm like, you know, one day I was like, well, what's, what's kind of going on up there? You know, and they're like, well, you pray and then the Holy Spirit comes inside of you. In fact, if you don't do this, you don't really have the Holy Spirit inside of you. Like, really? I'm like, I mean, I don't want to be left out. I was really seeking God. I mean, I was like innocent. I wasn't like questioning. Them. I'm like, OK, so what do I do? What do I you know, where do I go? What do I do? Well, you come up and we pray for you. So I would go up at times and I would stand there like this. And I kind of looked up. Everybody else was kind of looking up. So I would look up. And I would pray and they would do stuff, but I didn't feel anything. And I'm like, what, what's wrong? What am I missing? And they, when they said, like, you, if you don't do this, 
Like you, you don't have the Holy Spirit in you. I was thinking that doesn't make sense to me. And I wasn't a, like a, a Christian for a super long time, but I'm like, it doesn't seem to make sense. If Jesus, if I accepted Jesus into my heart and he came into my heart, then he's God, he's the Holy Spirit, he's God the Father. If that's all the same, and then the Holy Spirit has to be inside of me. I don't understand what they're saying, but I didn't necessarily question it. You know, and they, so um, my friend, by the way, my friend had experienced it. And like, I remember vividly, like having to walk around him in the aisle because he was laying on the ground, not trying to step on him. So I said, listen, what happened? You know, what exactly happened? Because I want to know, nothing happens to me when I go up there. And he's like, whoa, you know, and I'm like, so did you feel the power of God? Did you feel like tingly? Did you just pass out? Did you black out? What happened? And he's, he's like, well, you know, I'm, I was on the ground and I'm like, well, come on, tell me. And he's like, well, all right, listen, I was just embarrassed. And I, so I, I didn't want to disappoint them. I didn't want to feel left out. So I fell over. Now, <laughs> I'm not trying to really make fun. Of it. It, this is the experience I had. Okay. And I'm just telling the story as it is. So I said, so you're just doing it so that you don't feel left out. He's like, yeah, basically. So I'm like, man, but I really want it. And they would say to me things like this. They'd say, well, you get the Holy Spirit. I can tell you're going to fly back. And I'm like, well, I hope somebody catches me. And I'm like, where am I going to fly to? And I'm like, but I was like, I really want the Holy Spirit. If there's something I'm missing, I want it. I want to know. And, I, and Lord, I, I'm open to you. Whatever you want from me. So coming up to one week, I was like praying like crazy. And I read the scripture verse. And, it's, you know, if you ask in sincerity, if you knock, I will open. And I'm like, Lord, I'm just going to pray and I'm going to trust you and I'm going to believe and I'm going to go up there. And, and this is an interesting thing, because I said to them when I would go up, I would go like this. And I'd say, sometimes I feel like I'm going to fall over and lose my balance, because if you do that for long enough, you might. And they'd say and I'd say, you know, so sometimes I kind of straighten myself up and they go, oh, you're resisting the Holy Spirit. That's what they told me. So I said, well, I, I don't want to resist the Holy Spirit. So I determined when I went up there, if I feel like I'm falling over, I'm going over. Whatever happens, happens. So I prayed and I said, Lord, I'm here. I'm asking you whatever. So I walked up and there I was. And um, I'm praying and they're praying. And I'm just standing there for a while. And then eventually I feel like I'm going to fall over because I'm losing my balance. I'm like, I'm not fighting it. So I fell over. About the only thing I remember is I had work boots on. I don't know why. I think it was winter up there because I was in New England. And I, start, and I fall over and they caught me. And, uh, and I'm like, I didn't feel anything. So I stood back up and I went like this. <laughs> and the pastor went, really? All right. So he came back over and he started praying. And uh, I'm like, okay, Lord. You know, and I'm praying as hard as I can. And, and I start feeling like I'm going to fall over. And boom, I fell over again. They caught me and I'm like... I didn't feel anything, so I stood back up. I did that four or five times. I'm not joking. I'm like, Lord, I am like holding on to you. Like, you know, Jacob was holding on to the guy he wrestled for the blessing. I'm like, I am not going to. And it, But after a while, like maybe the fifth time, I was just like, you know what? It's not, it's not here. It's not here. Now, I'm not going to question somebody else's experience, and maybe they have, and I don't know what that is, but I'll say this. We can't build a theology on it. We can't say that this has to happen for every single person. It's pretty interesting because later, when I looked in the Bible, I found no evidence for this practice. Not anything that was real. Not anything that we could build a doctrine on. And maybe if you're like me, you also heard of something like this. It says, if you don't speak in tongues, you haven't received the Holy Spirit. Have you ever heard that? Like speaking in tongues is the only evidence that you receive the Holy Spirit. And now, sometimes that's true. I mean, it can be. 
and evidence. It's happened in the Bible and we see that. But it's not necessary for all people. You see, it's a product of bad theology and taking scriptures and using them out of context. And then what happens is it drives a wall between us and God. I mean, later on, I heard a more biblically sound view of what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. You know, there's three positions of the Holy Spirit in your life. And if you read John chapter 14, Jesus says to his disciples, the Holy Spirit who is with you will soon be in you. The first one is with. The Holy Spirit is beside every single person, no matter who you are, whether you're a Christian or whether you're a non-Christian, where you're taken off in the other direction and you're going in places where God, you'd never invite him in. The Holy Spirit is there with you right beside you the whole time. And Jesus says he's convicting of sin. He's testifying of truth and he's telling you who Jesus is. That's why we know we're sinners. That's why we know what we need God and that Jesus is the way because the Holy Spirit is outside of us all the time, never leaving us because God will do anything to get you. But the second position is in you. And in you happens when you receive Jesus. If you read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it tells us this, that you, many of you do believe that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came inside of you and sealed you for salvation. The, when Jesus was uh, risen from the cross and he comes into the upper room and the disciples are standing there, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Then he says another thing. Now, go and wait in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Upon you is the third. It's with you, in you, and then upon you. And then they go to Jerusalem and then the Holy Spirit falls in the room that they're on and they start speaking all these languages and tongues of fire come out and they can do miracles and they can heal people and they can prophesy and they can do all these different things. And that third position is the Holy Spirit empowering you and me in ways that we don't have power. In ways the spiritual gifts that God is giving you or it might be even enhancing something that you wouldn't be able to do on your own. You see, in the early church, there were these people called the Judaizers. And they would go to all the churches like after Paul would leave and they would show up on the scene and they were kind of Christians that were Jewish. And they would go to any of the Gentile believers who weren't Jewish, but they were Christians and say, you can't be a Christian because you need to, ladies, you were off the hook here, you need to be circumcised. Like, really? That's, I'm looking forward to that one. And they were saying, you need to be circumcised or you can't be saved. Not only that, you need to follow all the Jewish laws. You can't eat bacon anymore. Tough luck. All this stuff is not for you because you won't be saved. And they started building these barriers and these walls. And this is, Jesus, meek and mild, had the most severe words to say to guys who were like this. Listen, I put it in your outline. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. There are teachings out there that are subtly telling us that we are not good enough for God. There's an experience that you need. There's some kind of knowledge that you have to have in order to be closer to God. Slain in the spirit or speaking in tongues. You have to be baptized at our church and no other church. And they keep telling us that we are farther from God than you are. You see, that's the thing. These theologies make us feel distance from God. It's kind of like an us and them. We have it, you don't. We're the haves and you're the have-nots. And they diminish the power of the gospel in our lives because it's the gospel is the only thing that you need. The only thing that separates from you from God is sin. That's it. And he made a way for that because he died on the cross for you and me. And after we've accepted Jesus, if we still sin, we still can find forgiveness. That's the beauty of it. There's a saying that goes like this. The, 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 the ground at the foot of the cross is level. 
And that simply means that no matter where you're standing on the ground at the foot of the cross, you're not any higher than anybody else. We're all equally close to God. The person sitting next to you, me, you, we're all the same. Doesn't matter. Pastor Bob, Billy Graham, we're all the same in the eyes of God. Let's read the last two verses quickly. It says this, they are of the world, verse 5, therefore they speak as the world and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The fourth thing, the fourth sign of real theology is this, teaching that does not feed our worldly desires. Teaching that does not feed our worldly desires. You know, it's, it's not uncommon for us to want the pastor to say things that we want to hear. I mean, we're all human and we have desires and we'd like him to say certain things when it comes to counselor, whatever it is. I remember at a different church, not the one I was telling you about, but I was like a prayer partner. And that would be after the service was over. Then I might be standing on the side or in the front and the pastor would say, hey, when, as everyone leaves, if you want prayer, there's some people hanging out and they'll pray for you. So I was I would pray for people. And one day this older gentleman or he seemed past his is the middle area there, but he was all in a suit and I'd seen him once or twice, but not a whole lot regularly, really at the church. And he comes walking up to me and he's like, Hey, I'd like some prayer. And I'm saying, great, great. What can I pray for you for? Let me know. And he says, well, I have this business deal and uh, I really need help. You know, I really want God to help me get this business deal. And here's the thing. It's a $2 million deal. And he says, listen, if you know, you pray for that and listen, I'm going to tithe to your church. Like, so a little incentive here for me to pray harder. Is that what it is? You know, it's like, what does this guy really want? You know, and I didn't say like, you know, question his motive. I didn't question if he's having a selfish agenda here. I just said to him, you know what? I'm going to pray for you. And I didn't pray that God was actually going to do that. But I did pray this. I want God's, let's pray for God's will to happen in this situation and in your life. Because I don't know what it was. But sometimes we can be like this guy. We go up and we're just trying to, we want to manipulate it. We want to hear what God, God's got for us. We've got some kind of physical or some material agenda. And we're, we, we kind of put that before God. And John says this, we just read. He says, they are of the world, these people, these false teachers. They are of the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world. So they're teaching will appeal to our worldly or fleshly desires. That's what's going to happen when we listen to those teachings. They're really going to kill, kind of tell us what we want. And teaching like that make, might make certain sins acceptable, right? And maybe we've heard it in certain churches or certain places that, you know what? Oh, yeah, but that, that, it's not for today. You know how old this thing is? This is so old. There's, you know, there's something in the Bible that's not right for you and me. It doesn't matter anymore. And so we make an excuse for some kind of sin or something that we want to be a part of. Or if one believes the word of God, this is an interesting, if we believe the word of God and we confess it, confess it, then we will receive what we confess. It's called the word of faith movement. That means if I just claim it, I claim it in the name of God, then it will be mine. Bob calls it the blab it, grab it. Or that if you have enough faith, what about this one? If you have enough faith, then you should never get sick. I've even heard the extreme that you'll never die. I'm like, where did that come from? I'm just like counting the days. I mean, that's probably not the best thing to say, but you know what? Everyone's going to die. Listen, teaching might appeal to your material increase, right? You know, we'd be taught that a true child of God must be prosperous and that we have all these promises that we have to inherit and that we have to get. 
it's appealing to our world. Yeah, you know, I want to prosper. I want to have all those promises. Lord, give me all those blessings. But Jesus taught us that you cannot serve your desires and your God. He said you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and mammon. The psalmist even said this. If we were to balance the word of God, he says, you know, don't let me be rich, but don't let me be poor. Because if I'm rich, I may not want you. I may not. I might. I might uh, despise you. But if I'm too poor, then I might steal. So don't make me either. Don't make me rich, but don't make me poor. How do we balance that with those doctrines? I mean, can we just be honest for a moment? If we were just honest with ourselves and examine our motives. I mean, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with the Christian uh, prospering. Nothing at all. But what's to be said if that becomes our main pursuit? And we're doing it under the guise of God. Yes, God, but I need to be prosperous. You know, I've heard the term sow a seed. Maybe you've heard it, and I'm not trying to make fun of that term or anything like that. But I've heard that term sow a seed. And I, I'm not saying it's wrong, but I'm just wondering, what are you referring to? When you say sow a seed, are you referring to something that you're waiting to get back because you sow and you get back? Or are you sowing to see what would grow? Listen to what it says in the book of Acts. He says, I, Paul's talking, I planted. That means I sowed. Paul sowed, I sowed. Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So Paul's using this language too. He says, I sowed. But what is Paul sowing? He's sowing the blessing in somebody else's life that they might know God or that they might learn and they might grow. He's like, I sowed because of this, but why are we sowing? What type of seed are we intending to sow? Is it for righteousness or for our own personal gain? Paul warns us that this will be our desire. Listen, we're all human. I'm like you. You're like me. Every one of us, we're, it's, it's our tendency. It's our nature. And Paul says that. Listen, in your outline, preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound, wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. You know, good biblical teaching should correct, rebuke, and encourage us. That means sometimes you guys are going to walk out of here feeling convicted. Because that's what it should do. It shouldn't just make us feel okay every time we go into the church and like, yeah, I feel awesome. Everything is roses. Sometimes we'll walk away challenged to grow and to move forward or to be shaped. And we should be careful of doctrines that only talk about our own fleshly desires. We should be careful of doctrines that sound pseudo-spiritual but add a lot of our humanity in with it. They give you what God They give you a God and they give you also what you want to hear. And what happens in those situations is that over time, we become disillusioned with God when he doesn't deliver. And then we're like, what happened? The fifth thing, the fifth thing, sign of real theology is this teaching that does not distract us from God's purpose. Teaching that does not distract us from God's purpose. Around the house on Saturday morning, um, if you come to our house, we're probably doing something like working because Carol is usually my wife, Carol, she's usually doing the laundry and doing the dishes and doing the, well, we do the dishes during the week too, but she does like the laundry. I said that doing the wash the floor, does the bathroom, all these things. So she's busy working. And usually in the morning she'll wake up and she goes, well, what are you going to do today? And I'll say, well, I had this project going on. And I'm going to do that. So I start doing that. And then I start, I'm working and she's like, John, 
what are you doing? What are you working on? I'm like, well, I'm working, honey. You know, and I get a little defensive, like, hey, I'm working, you know, like, what are you talking about? And she's like, well, didn't you say you were going to do this? And I said, well, yeah, but I'm working over here now. And she's like, well, I thought you were going to do that. And I said, well, yeah, but this needs to get done too. And then she go to me, you know, I've noticed this about you. She goes, you'll start a project, you'll start doing it and you're working over here, but then you'll walk in the garage to get something. But then you'll notice in the garage, something needs to be done and you start working on that, you know? And then it's like, and then you walk over here and she's like, you, you're working, but you're not really getting done what you're supposed to get done. You see, we all have a tendency to be distracted so easily. And here's the thing. We can be distracted from our purpose from God. You see, here's the thing. We tend to like formulas. And I think that's why Jesus didn't use formulas much. When he healed people who were blind, it's pretty interesting if you notice. He, he uses different methods all the time. You know, someone will come up to him and he'd say, you know, what do you want from me? I'd like to be healed. So, he'll, you know, I'd like to see. So he'll, he'll, he'll touch their eyes and then he'd remove his hand and then they could see. And then somebody else would walk up to him. And this is a real interesting one. I mean, the guy walks up and then he spits right in his face. Can you imagine that, right? You walk up to Jesus and you're like, right in your face. Like, what? That's what he did. I don't lie. He spit right in his eyes. And then he wipes them away, you know, and the guy sees a little bit and he tries it again. And then the guy sees and it's like, so he did he like, what did you have to spit? You know, and another time the guy walks up and he just says, what do you want from me? And they said, well, I'd like to see that I might be healed. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Now go, you can see. And boom, he didn't do anything. He didn't touch the guy. Then another time he bends down, he spits in the ground and he makes mud and he puts like a plaster thing over their eyes. I wonder if their skin was soft and supple after that one, but... He like gives them this mud mask on their face. And then he goes, now go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And he washes and then he could see. And it's like, I think Jesus didn't do things all the time the same way. Because the problem with us as humans is what we do is we go, wait a minute, there's, a, there's an order here. He keeps doing that. He says it in a certain way. He does it in a certain way. And we start, what we start doing is we start looking at the method. We start focusing on the way he did it instead of the God who did it. And that's the problem. We can get distracted because we look at certain things and God works in different ways. So I don't want to tell somebody that God hasn't done a certain thing in their life. But we have to be careful not to worship the method instead of the God who's behind the method. You know, Jesus healed 10 blind people, 10 blind men once. He heals all of them and only one returned. Can you imagine that, right? Jesus healed you if you couldn't see and all of a sudden you can see and then they're just gone. They're off living their life somewhere and only one guy returns. You see, a lot of times you and I, we seek after like certain things that God can do. Maybe it's the certain knowledge. Maybe it's the certain healing. Maybe it's the certain power, whatever it is. And we're seeking after these constantly. But those aren't the things that change people's lives. Because if it was, every single one of them would have come back. And we sometimes get distracted because we think this glorious thing is the thing that's doing it, but it's not. This is a wise man once said this. Believers should not follow after signs and wonders. Signs and wonders should follow after believers. We shouldn't be like going crazy seeking all those things. Yes, it's edifying to seek them. It's good to do those things. But it shouldn't become the obsession that we have when it comes to God. You know, this, that verse that I gave you where it says you, you can pick up snakes and not be bitten and drink poison and all that, that's, in, that's basically what's called the, the Great Commission. And it's in the, the, the book of Mark. And right after he says that, he says these things will follow after you. 
Not you should be following those. In fact, what he says they should be focusing on is the Great Commission. And that's one of the two of the biggest things that will change anyone's life is the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. In Matthew, this is how the Great Commission goes. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know what changes a person's life? Is hearing the gospel. The Bible says in the book of Romans, it's the goodness of God that brings a man to repentance. The gospel is the good news. It's the goodness of God that we see what God has done for us. Here's nine people that were healed by God. Amazing work. God shows up in their midst and forget it. They don't care. I don't even understand how that can be. Their lives are dramatically changed and yet they're gone. And when Jesus says it's the gospel, it's the great commission. And the second is the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You see, that's God's purpose for your life. You're in my life. The great commandment and the great commission. That, as a Christian, is our focus, should be our focus. And anything else distracts us from those things. It's when someone sees us loving God and loving others that they're like, who are you? Why are you so weird? And how can I be like you? That's the weird thing. They want to be like us. That's what Jesus said. You will know my disciples because they love each other. John, in the book that we've been reading, he says, when you love one another, then they're going to know it's God. Maybe a miracle will show that God is behind it all, but it's the message of the gospel. And it's us living out the great commission and the great commandment is the thing that are going to change people's lives. The Gnostics in the early church proclaimed secret knowledge was needed to access God. But the message of the Christian life is so much more simply stated. The great commandment and the great commission. You know, sometimes we get hung up on the secrets that we need to know. More faith, more life, more power, more knowledge. And what happens when we do this is we begin to focus inwardly when we do those things. What am I getting? How do I get that? Where do I find that? But the kingdom of God is not inward. It's to focus outward. And that's God's purpose for us. You know, maybe the best guide for determining whether you're hearing good theology or bad theology is point number five whether it's distracting you from God's purpose or not. Listen, only you can answer that question. I can't tell you because I don't know what God's exact purpose is and how he's working in your life. But if we were to take this one at least, I would recommend them all, but if you were to take this one at least and once in a while turn inward and say, am I following God's purpose for my life? Then we would know if we're following after a good theology or a bad theology. Listen, today's message was not to bash any practice that's in the church, even though I mentioned many things. But what I'm trying to get us all to be is more like Bereans, that we would search the word of God and we would see if it was true. That we would know what we believe or should believe. And maybe we should know what our church believes. We could start there. You guys are sitting in this church. And so what I've done for you is I provided in your outline this card that says Statement of Faith. This is the Calvary Fellowship Statement of Faith. I want to encourage you to take this and read it. Maybe with your spouse or with your friend or whatever, or by yourself, whatever it is, and search the scriptures to see if it's true. Search to see if this is what you believe too, that you believe God's word says. It's important. 
And listen, another thing I want to encourage you to do as we're being Bereans is take out your connection card that Alex asked you to fill out. And on the back side, halfway down on the left, you'll see in board, uh, in bold, attend the membership class. That's next week. Check that off. Listen, attending the class will not make you a member. You have the opportunity to be one, but you're going to find out what this church believes, why we do ministry the way we do, what our philosophy is, what our vision is for the future, what our church government is like. And then you have the opportunity to say, yeah, does this line up with what the Bible says? I want to encourage you to be Bereans, not just out in the world, but everywhere, even in here. We should be discerners of what we hear because the teachings we absorb will either do one of two things. They're either going to distract you from God's plan for you or they're going to keep you on the path that God has for you. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you that this word that you've preserved over the ages remains true even today. Lord, I just pray for all of us here. Maybe there's some things that we're slightly convicting, or maybe there were some things that we said, man, I, I don't know if I agree. Lord, teach us to be Bereans. Teach us to look in your word. And Lord, may your Holy Spirit guide us. Even the word that we read today says, Lord, that the one who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And your spirit can speak to us and testify to what's true. Lord, I pray for everyone here and just ask that you would bless them this week, Lord. Help us to keep your word, to hold it in our hearts, Lord and to honor you, and Lord, to share the gospel with everyone that we know. Lord, I thank you for your goodness, and I thank you for the blessing of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.